I just finished recording a podcast with Elliot Cohen, who is a director of cybersecurity sales for AT&T. Cybersecurity, that's a mouthful. And I love talking with Elliot, you know, just in terms of the breadth of what he sees with, within the AT&T cybersecurity umbrella of, you know, everything from really small SMBs to the largest businesses on the planet and, you know, state and local governments, uh, federal government, et cetera. I mean, just everything across every segment they have exposure to. And the conversation gets in cybersecurity can get depressing very quickly. And just this, this sensation of not knowing where to start and not knowing how to help and, and just, you know, overwhelming it can be. And reflecting on this chat was, it's actually always is very positive in terms of there's so many things that can be done that don't cost a lot of money that can radically improve your cybersecurity posture and the continuity and defense of your business. And this isn't as overwhelming as it needs to be. I mean, there is there are people and programs and systems and availability out there in place that can help you go through the steps of where are you now and where do you need to be and how do we help you get there and how do we make measurable massive impacts in the protection of your business. And this is a conversation I enjoy having, you know, with our customers and with new companies all the time about, you know, here's easy things that you can do that'll improve your user's experience, improve your IT team's experience, and improve your business experience. We we actually avoided a lot of acronyms. We don't need to talk about cybersecurity and acronyms. I don't need to, you know, pound you with all these all these initials that mean absolutely nothing to you, but we but really more about outcomes. And the outcome really is how do you keep your business running and how do you protect and defend your company? And the unfortunate reality of cybersecurity and and risk to your business at this point is if you are connected to the internet, you are a target and you are a potential victim. What you do with that information is completely up to you. My advice to you is to defend yourself and pr protect and protect your business. And Elia actually uses some some very interesting analogies on how to think about this and what the mental exercise is and and, and applying different technologies and layers of technologies on this. But the big takeaway, you know, and, and what I want to impress is if you have nothing, it is okay. Let's get started on the journey and start improving your posture. And the sooner you do it, the better off you're going to be. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's always a pleasure for me to chat with Elia. He's a fantastic resource in AT&T cybersecurity. He's doing fantastic things for their customers. I'm Max Clark. Uh, this is an IT broker deep dive. Um, today I have Elia Cohen, who is Senior Director of Sales for AT&T Security. Now, um, it's important to notice this, uh, this is not AT&T. This is AT&T Security Division. We'll talk about that in more more detail, but I think one of the first notes that we get out of people a lot is AT&T is this horrible company that doesn't install fiber properly, and why would I use them for security? And, and we'll get into that, although AT&T installs fiber just fine. So, uh, Elliot, thanks for joining, and I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've got some notes to try to keep me organized, but we're going to go off the rails probably immediately. So, well, let's talk about your AT&T's customer focus. Big, big phone company, um, been around for a few years have a few employees, have a few customers, but also a pretty big range of, of customers by segment, which, which makes this a very interesting animal. And I'm curious um, if you could talk a little bit about how you segment who your customers are and what that really means within the AT&T cybersecurity teams. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, AT&T is more of a conglomerate, has a lot of different things that it does, uh, and I'm a part of the cybersecurity division. So uh, really our focus is cybersecurity exclusively. So uh, we do collaborate with other uh, teams internally to make sure that customers have the right experience, but our focus is cybersecurity. So 
Uh, in terms of customers, how we segment, uh, there, there's the typical uh, small business, mid-sized, enterprise, and then all of the public sector across uh, uh, lead, sled, and uh, federal. Uh, those are kind of the, class, the, the general classifications of customers. Uh, and we have solutions that spans across every single one of those, uh, those, those types of businesses. So it's a pretty exciting time to be here just because our focus is really to, um, to leverage some best of breed technologies in the industry and then wrap services and consulting experiences to give customers the right outcomes when using cybersecurity technologies. I've read, I think, only a thousand different definitions of what SMB versus mid-market is. I would love it if somebody was like, this is the definitive, like how you define these. How does AT&T cybersecurity define SMB to mid-market to enterprise? Like what are your, is it revenue? Is it employee count? Is it, I mean, what, what's what's the lines? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one uh, because I think even internally we have a few different definitions of it. <laughs> and then all of our partners like you uh, have your own classification of it. And so so I would say that at the heart, there's really two metrics that, that are being utilized internally. One is uh, build revenue with AT&T. Uh, the other one is, uh, is your more traditional uh, kind of less than 20 or 50 uh, users or uh, employees. Uh, that's going to be considered more on the small side. Uh, and then mids, I'd say probably up to maybe 1,000, uh, maybe 1,500, 2,000 uh, employees. And then we start to tick into maybe mid enterprise after that, and um, and go beyond from there. I've I've been kicking around a new way of defining this, which is: Are you on an enterprise license for Office three sixty five or Google Workspace? <laughs> and if you are, then you're enterprise. And if you're not, then you're not. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure there's a user like... classification that aligns to that. But yes, that's probably very fair. <laughs> I mean, you're you're forced into enterprise at three hundred anyways. So I mean, at some point, it's like that. Now you're mid market. You're you have over three hundred employees, or you're on. You've bit the bullet and you've, you've switched to E3, E5, and okay, great. You know, you now get access to the fun stuff. This is one that that's always, I don't want to say like surprised or impressed me, but you know, with, with the amount of SMB business that AT&T has, you have cybersecurity solutions that really address SMB. And this has been, this is a pretty big challenge for us when we're, when we're dealing with the medium to small businesses and, you know, and uh, people that have you know high-end needs at those sizes, and really what, what tooling and what solutions are available to it. So how do you think about this, and how do you approach it, and how has AT&T really kind of tackled like the, the low end of the customer market? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're a prime example of uh, bringing customers that have <laughs> exactly that definition. <laughs> I feel like this is a leading question. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've seen over the years that uh, you've, you've brought customers that are kind of more in a startup mode uh, they're they're defining their business they're maturing and they're rapidly scaling and so they have uh, demands maturity cybersecurity maturity requirements that are being demanded upon them by their customers their uh, future business directions you have to be able to figure out how to scale that and so uh, one of the benefits that AT&T has is the size of AT&T uh, that's sometimes daunting for customers or partners or anybody else but it's also a pretty big advantage because that size, that scale allows us to have some pretty powerful uh, volume purchasing. And with that, we're able to get really, really good priced products with services to customers that would otherwise not be able to afford them and probably forego the cybersecurity controls. So I'd say that that's probably one of the, the biggest advantages that we have as a large organization in serving smaller customers is just the, the, the buying power and then the ability to create uh, repeatable services uh, for smaller businesses. And I'll give you a couple examples. 
we're able to, you know, not many people can sell a single license of Sentinel One. Extremely small business that's maybe working from home and has a single computer there. Uh, and we also have network security solutions that start at fifteen dollars and maybe go up on the lower rent, uh, maybe a hundred dollars a month. So security can be affordable for just about anybody. But then, as the business starts to mature and uh, increase in uh, capabilities and demands, then we can scale up the services to things that align a little bit more to uh, their future needs. And we've talked about this a lot, but there's a few different like sizing checkpoints where you kind of get into where solutions make sense. And you know, um, Sentinel One at a dollar. Sorry, Sentinel One at a dollar. That'd be amazing. Sign me up. I mean, a single seat <laughs> Sentinel One is fantastic, right? But you know, when you when you start talking about you know 25 seat minimums, um, you've got interesting solutions at 50 seat minimums, 100 seat minimums. Um, you know, getting to some enterprise platforms where it's like a thousand seat makes sense, and you know, a thousand seat enterprise is, of course, dealing with very different things than a 50 seat, you know, SMB. There's there. That's also always interesting for me, just changing gears and thinking about it in terms of like, okay, here's the kitchen sink. You know, we could throw everything at this at the problem, but you know, at this size, it doesn't really make sense yet. I want to start here, and this this is this is not organized. It's just a you know a discussion here topic. What is driving cybersecurity? across these segments and what are you seeing and as you're talking to as you're talking to companies what actually is driving this and and what i've experienced with it is in traditional it purchases you know people like to talk about tco and roi and and attaching some sort of you know productivity metric or you know or cost savings or efficiency or these things around it and that doesn't line up exactly in the cybersecurity world right you're 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 talking about a different outcome or, or a different approach and you know from an SMB space you know there's not a lot of SMBs are really running out and looking to invest in cybersecurity because maybe they just don't perceive the, the necessity for it um, enterprises of course you deal with different issues and I'm I'm curious what your thoughts on this and what you're really seeing out there in terms of actually driving this conversation and driving the purchasing decision? I mean, I, there, there's so many drivers out there for it. Um, and I, I think you're spot on that ROI is definitely not the, <laughs> the appropriate metric here. Uh, but on the, the really small business side, I'll give you an example. So um, uh, an accountant that has a bunch of local businesses that they're, uh, and uh, uh, individuals that they're doing tax work for, they came to us post-breach because they got compromised, they got hit with ransomware, they, they did click that link. Um, and I think it was just a husband and wife duo that was um, running that business. Uh, but they were dealing with individuals within the community, they were dealing with local uh, businesses that were uh, kind of larger for the size of their firm, their accounting firm. They, as a result of this incident, had to go back and apologize to all of their customers, <laughs> fall on their sword, uh, and indicate that their data has been uh, jeopardized and that there's really not a whole lot that they can do about it now. And the only thing that they could do now in hindsight is put the right controls in place and start to take security seriously. On the small end, when there isn't necessarily a forced driver like that, where maybe maybe they're mid-sized customers that are uh, getting accounting services from them, they probably had to have uh, and should have had better supplier management uh, requirements for 
whoever's doing uh, accounting work or privileged in, has privileged information uh, to ensure that they're doing business with the right type of business versus mom and pop shop that doesn't really even know how to spell security. Uh, but then with this particular small business, they probably started to see a downtick. They ended up paying the ransom. Um, they, they asked to split that ransom because it impacted the other business and they couldn't afford it on their own. I mean, that's a bad place to be. <laughs> and so uh, after that, uh, you know, they bought some security controls. They bought uh, different types of solutions for uh, protecting their data and their, their business. But they're not going to get back to the same type of uh, market share with those uh, past customers. So it only takes one of those instances to realize the impact uh, to you and to your business uh, to take security a little bit more seriously. Um, the other part is... You know, if people are out at the, the golf club or dinner or some sort of a community event and they're hearing these stories from their fellow, uh, you know, uh, businesses that they're collaborating with and they hear that story, they're going to wonder like, hey, this might happen to me too. And maybe I should also do this before uh, an, an incident actually takes place. I say so a lot, by the way. Um, that firm, and I've, I've seen this and I'm sure you've seen this as well. They had an experience that has driven them into understanding and investing in cybersecurity to prevent that from happening again in the future. But if you'd gone to them a month earlier and said you should really do some things here to improve yourself and and have a better, you know, cybersecurity posture, they might have said we're not, you know, we don't need it, we're not at risk, we're not a target, nobody wants what we have, this isn't going to happen to us. I mean, there's a certain, you know, I don't know what the right expression is, but there's a certain disbelief of of the reality of of the world and now, of course, they say, okay, look, we've had this experience and we need it. We've gone through this horrible event. But how do you, what do you tell the people that are on the other side of this? They're still in the, like, oh, we're not a target. We don't have anything that people want. And, you know, we don't have to do anything here. Like, it's not important to us. I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. <laughs> if somebody doesn't want to invest and uh, take security seriously, then sometimes you just uh, leave them be. Give them some time to, uh, to observe the market, share with them information as things come up and as new, new ways of securing a business uh, change. Be ready, be, be there for them, uh, and await that phone call. Uh, I think that's, that's the only thing you can do. On the flip side, considering all the different things that you do for helping businesses, uh, you do have the ability to look at maybe other things they're doing, other things they're spending on. Maybe help them just reshuffle some things around with the intent of just doing the right thing, which is putting a few security controls in place. I've I've wondered I've, I've been I mean for years I've I've wondered about this in terms of what becomes the driving factor, you know. And and for a long time I kind of thought that um, insurance would be the driving factor, you know. Is is security you know is investing in security you know equivalent to buying insurance? Um, it doesn't really parallel that way because, of course, insurance is designed to pay you after something bad happens to you, and cybersecurity is designed to prevent something bad from happening to you, right? Like it's it's a it's a different type of uh, in, you know investment. Um, I was expecting cyber ins you know insurance policies to really drive you know cyber insurance uptick, but that doesn't seem to really be the driver. You know, I'm seeing insurance carriers just exiting it or actually creating more exclusions. Nation state you know sponsored hacking is just excluded from most policies at this point. And they decide it was a nation state actor, like you're just there's no insurance, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm seeing customers mandated in supply chain, you know, with supply chain controls. Uh, and that's actually been really impressive. And just, just, but that, that doesn't feel like it's coming from like individuals, you know, which accounting firm, like, I, you know, if I'm selecting an accounting firm or my neighbor is, I don't think they're, they're asking their accounting firms what their security controls are, compliances are. It really feels like it's big businesses pushing us down to smaller businesses in terms of what their security controls are. 
So now I'm now I just wonder if this is more a reflection of scar tissue. So is a phrase I use like you, there needs to be you know enough horrible stories of people basically either completely going out of business or almost going out of business or going through this you know and coming out on the other side before this becomes widespread and just a, a an understanding that this is now a cost of doing business. You're connected to the internet. And you need to have this in place. Yeah, I mean, I had uh, a customer that they were a uh, two brothers that built out this business to do um, uh, custom. Uh, printing uh, t-shirts and things of that sort and they had a really nice size business uh, but they hadn't done anything for security and uh, they went through they got hit with ransomware um, and they decided to forego paying the ransom and just really beef up their security controls they spent about a month down without the ability to actually uh, do anything and make revenue past contra- the contracts that they were trying to fulfill didn't get fulfilled so they had angry customers to deal with quote from the brother who was the uh, CEO of the, the, the company pretty much told me that was the the worst experience of his life and he will do whatever it takes to never ever have to go experience that again but I think to your now your your question about uh, is this is this insurance um, I mean if you start to think of like the the structure that you ultimately get to with insurance uh, let's just say fire insurance you have your uh, your building has to be built soundly um, with uh, proper uh, defensible space around the house uh, around the, the structures you have to have your fireproof doors you have to have your fire alarms your smoke detectors uh, all these different things to then be able to get to maybe having even a phone to be able to call the fire department and eventually when all that stuff has an impact and <laughs> negatively impacts uh, you as the homeowner, then you actually get to take advantage of your insurance. So cybersecurity is really all that stuff that comes prior to the insurance to make sure that you're not having bodily harm, you're reducing the likelihood and the quantity of uh, lost property. Um, it's it's really all of that and the, the response that comes with it. That's the way that I like to, to kind of look at it. I think that's a great analogy and a great way of phrasing it. Ransomware, let's talk about ransomware for a moment. You know, a printing company, ransomware, a small accounting firm, ransomware, big companies, ransomware, right? Like I mean, this we've is had not three uh, here recently uh, in the last month, three big ones. <laughs> so uh, how does ransomware happen? You know, this is, the, you know, for the purpose of the conversation, like, like, where does it come from? How does it happen? You know, what's what's a ransomware attack look like? You know, walk walk us through the, the life cycle of it. I mean, the short of it is. A piece of software that has malicious intents that's on the endpoint uh, that then does uh, lock, locks you out of your data. So the how it gets there, uh, there's a number of different ways. Uh, it could be a thumb drive that has that malicious software on it to auto load when somebody plugs it into their computer. It could be uh, somebody going to a website that has a malicious link that they click on or that they uh, that automatically uh, launches itself. Uh, it could be a user that is uh, coerced and tricked into clicking a link or opening an attachment, uh, laptop or desktop or on their mobile device that then uses credentials that are compromised to then move over to the, the more physical environment. So there's all these different ways that attackers are utilizing and they're getting pretty sophisticated in, in the how. Uh, and I think we saw here with uh, uh, just recently in one of the breaches where the help desk team was um, social engineered uh, to then uh, probably just take legitimate software, what they thought was legitimate, what they thought were legitimate actions, but in reality, they just loaded up malicious software that ended up being ransomware. 
the current estimate from MGM that they released was $100 million. It's $100 million was the cost of that. And that was a password reset. With I mean, that's just, that's depressing. But um, okay, so here's the other question. And I want to hear you say it. What makes you a target for ransomware? What is it about your business, your operations, your company that makes you a target and vulnerable to ransomware? Depends. Everything. <laughs> Anything and everything. <laughs> it could be that you're providing all sorts of core capabilities to some uh, conflict in another world. It could be that you are uh, a, a business supplying services to another business that they're trying to target. It could be that they just know that because you're a small business, you're, you're not going to take security seriously and you're going to be an easy target. And they can probably extort ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars out of you um, in a moment's notice. If you're connected to the internet, you are a target of ransomware. Is basically the answer, right? I mean, that's that's just a simple thing, right? If you have anything that's connected to the internet, the only thing that's gonna protect you from ransomware is if you're never connected to the internet and you don't plug in a drive ever and you live in a cave um, with no electricity, and then you'll probably be safe from ransomware at this point. <laughs> Chances are you probably have somebody that comes visit you every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> and that person will be your source of the breach. So I feel like no matter what, there's still somebody that will somehow <laughs> uh, be a part of the experience. So uh, you know, that, that's, that's a, a pretty big distinction here is um, there's directed attacks, right? You know, uh, social engineering is usually a directed attack. And then there's non-directed attacks, which is just you know, we've somehow managed to get you to run a payload or we've, we've, you know, we've run a payload on one of your devices. And that can just be, you're connected to the internet. We're sending an email out, something gets through, we've compromised something somewhere that then you get, you know, attached to because somebody, you know, it's, it's, you know, there, there there's a certain randomness, that kind of, um, I don't want to say spray and pray because it's very effective, but it's, uh, it's not directed. I think that's, that's, a, that's the one thing we should probably clarify here on this one, which is hacking is not necessarily directed activity. It could just be that you were connected to the you know, wrong website at the wrong time and, and, and you get hit. Cybersecurity is a mess of acronyms. There are, and it's like every day there's a new acronym that comes out, you know, and, you know, SWG and RBI and APT and CTNA and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's like in conjunction, those are tools, right? Usually you start talking about tools and techniques to reach some kind of objective. And actually we should circle back around in this. But then we start, I think we talk about frameworks and maturity. So cybersecurity as an industry talks about like your security uh, maturity, like where you are in a framework. And, and I really hate that model because it makes no sense. Like, you know, well, it makes no sense to me. Like, you know, you should be like a two out of a five or a three out of a 10. And what does that actually mean? NIST has CSF. Um, there's a cyber defense matrix. There's a, there's a bunch of different, you know, kind of goals with these things in terms of of like how how far you are as you're talking with companies and they say to you we have nothing we have something we have this we have that and we want to strengthen our defenses and go up the stack like can you walk me through that conversation and you know how you go about like sussing out what's already there what their goals are how do they achieve it you know if they have zero and they're looking at i mean what yeah i mean i think it starts with just looking at who the customer is um, that's, the, that's the very first thing that I'll do is as uh, somebody that knows, doesn't know the business, knows nothing about them, I'll just go to their website and figure out what business they're in. Um, and that usually gives me an indication of uh, maybe what they may be susceptible to uh, and uh, uh, an understanding of what's at stake. Is it data? Is it intellectual property? Is it patents? Is it 
who they're servicing is a disruption to supply chain or to other businesses that they're maybe uh, building parts for. Uh, that's the what's at stake. And um, I usually try to, in a conversation, uh, hear the customer share with me what their thoughts are on what's at stake so that we can have a, t a, a tangible, quantifiable uh, element of uh, impact and risk uh, to the business should something take place. Uh, the reality is when you start to look at cybersecurity, cybersecurity is really there for business continuity and disaster recovery. So it's an element of a BCDR plan. Uh, they could get hit by a, a, you know, a lightning strike, earthquake, whatever. Uh, but cybersecurity is just another one of those things that could impact the business. So I start to think about, uh, and you mentioned a few different frameworks there. Uh, the frameworks are there as a best practice of all the different things that you should be doing. Uh, there's a lot of controls inside of them. Um, some are probably going to be uh, your your first and foremost and most important things versus uh, others. Uh, so just having some sort of your own personal uh, scoring of what's important, what will have the most impact, uh, and then starting to cross-reference with them uh, what they have, what they don't have, uh, and not just technology, but how they're actually utilizing the technology. So uh, clearly some sort of uh, EDR tool is really important, making sure that uh, it's being watched and uh, uh, somebody's paying attention to it. Um, I'd say vulnerability management is probably another one of those that's super, super important these days just because uh, if you don't know your exposures on a, on a pretty regular basis, then somebody else will know your exposures and utilize those against you. Um, so uh, scanning your network internal, external, uh, all that's really important. Patching is also just as important because if you don't have a repeatable way to patch, then all of those vulnerabilities will continue to sit there and, and be uh, utilized. Um, and then uh, some sort of network security controls to make sure that uh, there's a firewall, there's some sort, uh, just depending on the structure of their network, that there's something they're protecting the network and that it's staying up to date and somebody is configured it appropriately. Countless businesses I've talked to where they tell me, oh yeah, we have a firewall. Well, how have you had it? Well, uh, we had some, some guy come over maybe seven years ago and install it. And they're like, well, has he been back? <laughs> and I kind of know the answers when they tell me it's that old of what's coming next, but I'm just helping, like, helping them realize that you can't just you know, buy a car and just drive it into the ground. You have to maintain it and you have to, at some point, replace it. As, as a guy who used to work for a company and part of my job was installing firewalls for customers, it is my uh, mission to eradicate all on-premise firewalls because 99.99% of all 999, probably like seven nines of firewalls have the same policy, which is allow everything out. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, great. You know, I mean, it's just a NAT gateway for the most part. We'll, 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 if we have time, we'll come back to that. I want to, you shared something with me about a year ago, two years ago, which I'll dub the uh, Elliot matrix, which was protect your users, protect your devices, protect your network, right? A really kind of simplistic way of, of approaching this. And I'd love it if you could dive a little bit deeper into this, you know, kind of idea of how do you protect your users? 
And then how do you protect your devices and how do you protect your network? Because, you know, um, SANS used to release these things of like, what are your, what are your, you know, threat vectors in your network, right? And it was always like, oh, uh, it was like malicious acts by internal employees, accidental acts by internal employees, this, act, you know, acts by external people. But, you know, people are, I don't know, the sort, I mean, you people on user accounts are the source of basically everything that happens on a network at this point. And um, how do you, how do you actually go about and layering, um, you know, this, this idea of, you know, protect your users, protect your devices, and protect your network. The users, I'd say, is one of the most challenging things these days, um, because um, I think there's still a lot of businesses that are in flux on some sort of uh, local on-premise uh, identity service. Uh, everybody's moved into some flavor of SaaS and cloud, uh, and uh, not everyone has consolidated onto a single thing. And the reality is, as soon as you move to uh, SaaS like uh, Azure AD and O365 or uh, uh, Google, uh, you're, you're kind of exposing all of your authentication out to the entire world. So something that used to be very private is now very public. Uh, and you have to think about how, what that means, how that integrates to all the different things that your users are trying to connect to or utilize to connect with, uh, and then also uh, make sure that's really rigid um, in, uh, in terms of the, the, the security aspects of it. So multi-factor is gonna be super important. Um, making sure that your users are using strong passwords with some level of rotation uh, following some of the best guidelines there um, are, are, is going to be important. But then uh, if you start to look at users, it's not just users and their access, it's also what they do with the data. Uh, appropriately, inappropriately, knowing what users are supposed to have access to, what they're not supposed to have access to, uh, what they uh, maybe are sending externally or, or taken offline uh, appropriately, inappropriately, all that stuff needs to be kind of reviewed. And knowing that your users can be doing things uh, for, for good, but they can also be doing things for bad. They can also be utilized to do bad things without even knowing it. And that's where all the, you know, you mentioned the, the, the endpoints in the network as well. Uh, all of those things have to work in harmony uh, because uh, ransomware, for example, uh, it may start with compromising credentials to then infiltrate the network to drop a payload, but it can also just go right to the endpoint uh, from a, based off of a network action or a user action. And so having those things work in parallel uh, is really key and having consolidated visibility across everything, your users, your network, your endpoint, uh, is how you start to uh, turn this into a real security program. Uh, and, uh, and then the other part is what's the right way that the business wants all this stuff to work? So uh, having defined policies, procedures, uh, standards, all of that also works in parallel uh, to define exactly how the environment should look to then be able to uh, put the right enforcement and response uh, controls in place. And one more thing I'll say is, and I'll take a quick pause, <laughs> is uh, uh, just uh, this week I was chatting with one of our SOC engineers and uh, one of their, what they're seeing as one of the, the more recent and prevalent attack vectors is uh, smishing attacks. Um, so <laughs> so uh, malicious uh, SMS or text messages being sent to, to, to employees uh, that because 
as I was mentioning earlier, uh, credentials, you're all in the cloud on Office 365 or some other uh, cloud-based service. Um, as soon as they click that link, it'll compromise the, uh, the credentials of the user to then be able to move laterally to other devices and other parts of the network. Uh, and that is then how ransomware is most commonly getting put in place. And virtually nobody has any kind of mobile security in place today. So, uh, okay. A little bit, little bit of stuff to unpack there. <laughs> Smishing and what was the other one that's, that's, that's popular and circulating right now is um, quishing. Quishing attacks, QR code like attacks. So, okay, so this is, this is a, a question in terms of order. Yeah, I've got a funny one right. with QR codes if you want. <laughs> oh, great. I'd let, tell me. Tell me. <laughs> I was at a conference, and uh, I wrapped up my whole session with a, uh, hey, thanks for joining my session, and here's a QR code on how to stay in touch oh, with no. us. No, 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 you didn't. I did. <laughs> After I did a little bit of a security awareness training and some like portfolio overviews and all that, and the entire room was up there with uh, like taking a picture of it, and uh, it, it was funny. And uh, fortunately, it was a, it was a it was a good, well intended. Uh, landing page that just said, hey, we got you. <laughs> and you should really think twice before you uh, use QR codes. And pretty much everybody in the room was like, oh, yeah, I guess we really should. <laughs> my, my version of that story is uh, early 2000s at a DEF CON conference. And uh, I, I, the talk was irrelevant, but at the end of the talk, there's like a lightning round and this guy gets up and he had a pineapple you know, device, basically a precursor of a pineapple. And he gets up there and he just starts reading off passwords. And he didn't, he, he wasn't saying usernames and he didn't say like what services it was, but just literally started reading off passwords from everybody that was in the audience trying to connect to Wi-Fi and like check their email or do whatever. And it was just like, and he's just reading through this list of passwords and people in the audience were just having, were just freaking out. And it was, it was that easy. You know, it was like, he was just sitting in the room, just, you know, really unsophisticated kind of stuff. Okay. So in your little just talk back then. Um, I think I counted maybe between seven and nine different acronyms of tools to accomplish the different examples of business objectives that you were talking about, and like, you know, protect data access and protect this and protect that. And, you know, um, I like that you weren't throwing out tools because it's, it's more granular when you say like, how do you make sure that your finance team is only authenticating with your ERP when they're, you know, um, in a time zone that they should be in, right? You know, the, the classic example of why is your CFO trying to, um, you know, log in from Nigeria into, you know, I just picked Nigeria out of the world, but, you know, whatever, into your ERP at 3 o'clock in the morning. Probably not, like, a, a, a valid, you know, remote access. Um, Multi-factor authentication in SSO is one for me that's very interesting because it, it really, done correctly, it accomplishes two things for you. It it makes your users' lives better because now it's easier for them to authenticate and gain access to your tools and your and your systems. And it also makes your life better, uh, the company's life better, because you have a, a stronger control around those identities. And, of course, the big example of that is, you know, we start talking about, um, you know, serving a URL to the browser and not typing a username and password into that, you know, password form, uh, you know, the, you know, you know, the, it's really easy to mask and make a website look like it's the right website. And even looking at the URL, there's characters that are the wrong character, but it looks like the right character in, in terms of URLs. Like, 
you know, I think for a long time it was, you know, there was this perception of like, oh, why did you click on this link, you moron, and you, bo you bozo, and you like launch this attack? But I mean, it's it's very sophisticated. It is basically impossible to assume that your users and even your your practitioners in this space are going to not fall victim to these things because you know this is a big industry and people spend a lot of time and energy doing it. So um, we're starting to see pass keys and hardware keys coming out. Are you seeing that as a, I mean, MFA and like an SMS being sent to a user is better than nothing. And having a, like a, a TOTP, you know, like a Google Authenticator type thing is better than nothing and is like the next step. Are you seeing a push to pass keys and, and hardware keys like Titan keys or YubiKeys or these sorts of things, you know, really becoming prevalent now, um, you know, out there with, with companies? Um, it depends on the industry. Uh, as a whole, I think it's still a bit early. People are still trying to figure out what, what the right uh, path forward will be. Um, a lot of these businesses, they literally just made a giant investment on uh, multi-factor. So <laughs> for them to now have to sh shift to yet the next greatest thing, I think it's going to take a few years for them to amortize that investment. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. And the reality is corporate purchasing cycles come into play. Yep. Yeah, I think so. And But I, but I think that's probably going to be the direction um, here uh within the next maybe two or three years is a shift towards um, towards the new technologies for it. It's it's harder to fish somebody when they have to plug a key into the computer and that key has to look and, and uh, identify that URL as being a valid URL before it can do, you know, take action or put a password in, right? Like it's just, that, that, that doesn't... I mean, if you, you look know, at the DOD, I mean, they've been doing that for years. Um, yeah, so. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay, everybody, there it is. Just do what the DOD does and you're gonna have no cybersecurity problems. <laughs> They have a very designated card that <laughs> that is their ID <laughs> that they have to walk around with and utilize. But and, and put you, it into things. Can you imagine your uh, small business walking around with an extra thing that they have to keep on their keychain or in their on their person to authenticate to the device? I mean, I, that's the part that the the user experience of that is uh, the part that concerns me. So um, I like the concept of pass keys, and and so you know. We're a small business by you know user count. We're sophisticated users, but we're a small business by by headcount. And um, I like pass keys and push authentication that goes into applications on a on a on a you know like on your mobile. You know, and so even if you're using a pass key or a hardware key to do the initial authentication onto the mobile device, but then when you're signing into a service, you know, uh, Google's actually I think really trying to do the right thing here of being like, okay, we're going to actually push an alert to some other app, you know, to your mobile device in the application to validate that it's you when you're you're signing in. So I, I think that's a it's a really good step forward in the right direction it's a little bit harder to you know do the do the obviously bad attacks of getting people's passwords um you know i, I see all these horror stories on instagram where people are like my account was hacked and it's like no i don't know if your account was hacked or if you just gave them your password without realizing that you were doing that i feel bad for them but it's you know that the actual attack is unsophisticated so um i'm going to circle back on something so we talk about sso mfa identity Identity management. And by the way, this is really important because you know Colonial Pipeline was is a was a compromised VPN account for a user that was no longer at the company, and they paid over four million dollars in ransomware plus whatever loss they had in in revenue and everything else that they had to deal with. Right. So this is a this is an eight figure plus attack from a, a, an account that shouldn't have been active on a platform that could have been dealt with in a very simple way. You mentioned EDR. And you talk about EDR, and in the same kind of con sentence, you talk about mobile devices and not having any sort of mobile security deployed in most, most of these companies. So EDR is, is, is this like kind of, you know, default, like you should get your EDR in place first. Is that 
do you think that's the right play? Because, you know, looking at these tools, and especially when it comes into like a sassy definition, and I'll start using some acronyms, but let's just say, you know, secure web gateways or remote browser inspection, you know, something that's actually doing, you know, inline traffic inspection and URL filtering for devices. So both, you know, a desktop and a mobile device and being a little bit more in the chain or as like more of like an offensive measure as opposed to an EDR that's really almost a defensive measure. Is there more value? I mean, is it just you need the EDR because you have to have the EDR and that's just a foundation for everything else that you need? Or do a lot of these controls and sophistication really come from these, this like next step of tooling of saying, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be better served having something that can actually say, you know, this is a bad URL. We're not going to let you get there. So I think it goes back to what, what we were just talking about, where you have to protect your users, your devices, your network, and your uh, applications and data. I'm going to put, put some assumptions in place. Assuming that your users are not going to do anything uh, bad to harm you, because that's a whole other level of inspection on what's being done. No, I mean, so you take away from the intentional acts by some rogue actor inside your company. Yes. So if we're, if we're just following on external actors that are really targeting you as a business, then... EDR, um, so let's start at the, the users. So considering all of their authentication is being done uh, now on Office 365 in the cloud, if that's compromised, then they get access to everything else. So <laughs> you have to protect the authentication with some kind of multi-factor, uh, and that'll at least do some really good for that business. Uh, the next thing is the users are like in that business is going to be connected to the internet and they're going to be connected to the internet through devices. Uh, their data will be somewhere either on an internal network, on the external or both today's standards. So as users are going to the internet, they're not just going to go to Office 365 or to Salesforce or to whatever the applications are. They're going to go to Facebook. They're going to go to uh, do Google searches and everything else that they uh, are going to do as a part of just being a human that has access to the internet. So you have to put the right controls in place on the network to protect and limit the malicious things that they're potentially able to expose themselves to, um, to prevent malicious things from coming down to the network. But even then, things are still going to slip through the cracks. So you have to have something on the endpoints protecting the endpoints and making sure that those endpoints are looking at the the, the payloads and the downloads and the the uh, the applications or uh, exploit attempts that are taking place on those endpoints. And that's where the EDR comes in. So it's really kind of those things combined that give some very rudimentary controls for um, any business to, to, to really start to uh, secure that business. For clarity, you know, on, on like a you know, rough scale, being here with nothing and then adding EDR, it's not like you're going from here to here. It's like adding the EDR goes from like here to like here. You know, it's, it's a lot of these things are, are monumental leaps forward in terms of your overall posture and your overall program. You know, having MFA isn't like a little thing. It's like a huge evolutionary leap for, for a business. So these, you know, if, if you're watching this and you're kind of wondering like, oh, you know, how much benefit am I going to get out of this? Each, each thing you actually get a huge benefit from, you know, it's, it's massive improvements. I mean, I'll go back to the, uh, to the, the fire analogy. I would say that EDR would be in new construction where you're mandated to put in sprinklers inside uh, the building. Uh, it'll detect the fire, but it also start to put it out. And that's really versus just having a smoke alarm or having your defensible space or your reinforced doors. This actually starts to uh, detect and respond to it.
something that I've noticed with our customers and when we're talking with new companies is at about a thousand employees ish, there starts to become a dedicated security function within that company. Maybe you have a team of two to three people that actually are like designated security practitioners. You know, under under a thousand, it's just somebody in IT that gets designated as like you're you're going to be like the security guy, right, or gal. Microsoft with you can you can overlay security with their Sentinel tool and um, Defender, you know, on E3 licenses. You can buy it with an E5 package. And I'm starting to see a lot of companies say, "Okay, great, we're going to go out, we're going to get Microsoft, and we're running E5 security, and so now we're fine. We got we're, we're protected." And 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 this turns into like a do-it-yourself versus having a partner and bringing in a company like AT&T to actually help implement and manage these programs. And I'm curious your thoughts on this: do-it-yourself versus do-it-with-a-partner, and the trade-offs that really are coming out and and I have my version of this but I'm really interested to hear your version of it yeah uh, if you have the IT person that is also doing security and it at sub a thousand you might only be looking at one or two IT people the skills aren't there so I'm not gonna get into whether Microsoft Defender is good or bad or if there's better out there or worse uh, but Focus, focusing just on the human aspect of it they're not gonna have the time the capacity uh, uh, or the understanding to be able to look at what's taking place with the tool and respond appropriately and make changes to the environment as appropriate. And when you start to go to the example that you gave at that thousand uh, user threshold with maybe one or two uh, uh, dedicated security titles in the organization, still not enough. One or two, they're going to be working eight to five, uh, nine to five. <laughs> and what happens overnight when those servers are still running, those cloud workloads are still running, the businesses, uh, customer facing applications that they're hosting are still running. Nobody's there to look at it and pay attention to it. Businesses today are more and more running 24 by seven and they actually need 24 by seven uh, monitoring and response capabilities uh, available to them because the adversaries, they may be domestic, they may be overseas, they may be in the same or different time zones or opposings, or they're just using automation and they may be sleeping and still attacking us. So <laughs> we have to be ready and defending at all times. And you can't do that with one or two or even a small army of people. Um, and the other part of it is accountability. I personally would rather say that I had outsourced my security to one of the, the best MSSPs name brand with recognition and said, we did everything that we could and we still got hit. And that's also kind of the part of reality today, but we were able to recover faster and more efficiently. And we have proof that we did all the right things. Yes, it's not, it's not, what's the word, it's prudence. Prudence is the word. We, we took, we were prudent in the actions that we took um, and we're not negligent, right? I think, I think those two words are going to start being used a lot more, especially in the public company or, or companies that are, um, have investors in them in terms of uh, what potentially happens to the board members and the executive teams. Is there personal liability? Did you act in a prudent way or did you act in a negligent way? Um, that'll be interesting to watch that flush out. <clears throat> you mentioned vulnerability management and patch management. I can't think of two terms that are more unsexy for a company to go out and purchase. I don't see very many people lining up and you know tripping over themselves trying to buy an asset management, vulnerability management, and patching management system. You know, this is kind of like one of those like very bottom of the like the priority list in terms of like resume building activities. I'd, I'd love it if we could dive into this a little bit more in terms of what you get out of these things and why they actually are so critical. And I can share some stories, but I want to hear, hear you first. Sure. So might not be sexy, but it's 
uh, I would say it's like wake up in the morning washing your face, <laughs> brushing your teeth. It's just proper hygiene. It's, it's what uh, IT environments should be doing uh, on a continual basis. Uh, so I consider that to be just basic IT and cybersecurity hygiene for uh, an environment. And uh, while it's not uh, sexy, it's, it's also not difficult if you're equipping yourself with the right tooling. That right tooling is super cost effective these days. Uh, and so for the little that you spend on it, the, the, the rewards that you're going to get out of it and the additional security of your environment are just tremendous. Uh, let alone the automation for uh, the, like when you start to look at patch management, uh, I'll, I'll talk about another one of these small businesses that I've worked with where uh, I was talking to the uh, IT manager over there. Uh, when I mentioned patch management, she with pride and joy told me that she, part of her daily function is to walk around to each of the PCs in the environment to do all of the necessary patching. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> just, 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 in what world is that like a positive for you? Like... I mean, when it's, when it's what you've done for the last oh. 10 plus years, it's what you know, uh, it's, it's what pays your, it gives you a check every month. Like, do you want to mess with that? I mean, I feel like that's uh, what it is. Let me just, just stop you right here. Uh, if, if anybody is listening to this and they think that this is what derives value for their employment status with their company, <laughs> it doesn't. The outcome is what derives value, right? The patches are done. You walking around to every desk is not what does it. They don't, you're, you're, I guarantee that your management ownership does not care how much time you spent patching, just that the patches were done. So for the, for the love of your sanity and time, <laughs> please do not do this manually. I, I, don't do it manually. <laughs> Uh, no, seriously, like your executive, if you think about it, executive, you know, like your your boss, your executive team, your ownership, whatever, whatever you want to put in terms of your like upper level management, you know, they want to see, uh, you know, are you tracking KPIs and are you improving them? You know, like what's your time to patch? What's your patch deployment? Uh, you know, what metrics can you derive? Uh, you know, how are you, you know, what, what's your response? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that they want. They don't want to hear that you were walking around patching every desktop and like you need a pat on the back because like you're you're doing such a good job like running Windows Update on 100 computers. Like hey, they're, they're pretty visible when they're walking around. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, but you, I think you're spot on. Like the KPIs is, uh, is the inherent value of moving towards vulnerability management and patch management like right there within the tool you can show your all of those kpis of time to remediate uh the the high medium lows and the the time that those were actually there uh not only that you also have like the the what you should do for the non-patchable things like what are the recommendations that otherwise would take you maybe either towards the path of waiting and skipping it because you don't know what to do and the patch isn't available to maybe a, a compensating control that you can put in uh, to minimize the the negative impacts of that vulnerability, and and some of these uh, vulnerability management tools uh, have gotten really sophisticated in terms of they'll actually tell you like this is a this is a, a an exploit that we know is in the wild. Basically, you get scoring of like this is a really bad thing, but you have to have local access and this and the other thing, and it's like basically it's it's you know like not likely to be an event that you really are too terrified about versus like stop everything and figure out what to do about this right this second because bad things can happen to you. So we have a shared customer and by 
just fluke of timing, they deployed a vulnerability management system right before Log4j happened. And the conversation with them pre-vulnerability management going into place was something along the lines of they didn't need it and it wasn't going to give them much value and that they were secure, you know, and, and you know, we've, they had it managed and they knew where everything was and, and they had an external requirement that, that require, you know, that, that forced them to put this into place. And then Long4j happened and it was literally everywhere. I mean, places that they had no idea it was. Not only was Log4j everywhere, but then the vulnerable versions of Log4j, as Log4j was being revved up to try to deal with stuff, and then it was like there was like three, four, five versions where they would release a version, and then that had vulnerability, and it, it was just this nightmare of like Log4j updates. Finding versions and vulnerable versions that would, I mean, it was the same. It was ridiculous how prevalent this was in, in their environment. And in places where they had no idea that it would have been running because, you know, why would it have that dependency and who would have thought that it was there? And it was really, it was really impressive to have that conversation pre-log4j exploit and during log4j exploit and post-log4j for exploit of just really seeing that like mentality shift from start to finish going through it of, of the val Now they didn't have a patch management system deploy that was actually maintained and do all that for them automatically. And they had a lot of other fire drills they had to deal with, but it was, uh, as an outside observer, it was pretty amazing to just witness the chaos caused by this seemingly benign thing that nobody really knew about or cared about because it wasn't you know who talks about log4j on, the, on a daily basis and, hey bob how's it going you know oh yeah you know we got this log4j thing running out there vulnerabilities exist out there uh they're they're out there on a regular basis and i'll, I'll give you another example here we had a customer that had uh, you know they they had a computer desktop that was sitting in the closet <laughs> <laughs> they decided to pull it out and see what was on it. As soon as they powered it on, of course, they had it plugged into the network. <laughs> and it was uh, vulnerable to the the old uh, yesteryear uh, SMB vulnerabilities. It actually had WannaCry sitting on it. <laughs> and as soon as they powered it on, it tried to go laterally, but very quickly, all of the EDR uh, that was on the network previously installed, fortunately they were at that level, immediately saw it and blocked it. Uh, so the like, you never know what you're gonna run into in, in an environment and what the root cause of a potential impact uh, will be. But fortunately, they didn't notice that this thing was starting to run. Uh, but the EDR and the managed services that we provided were able to tell the customer, hey, you got one cry that's coming from some <laughs> device on your network. We haven't seen that in a while. <laughs> you need to go investigate and figure out what that device is that, that's just come online. <laughs> Let's talk about something that we've started leveraging more that I don't think a lot of people understand is your VCSO services. And uh, let's start with what are they and what can you do with them? Yeah, uh, so... VCSO, Virtual uh, Chief Information Security Officer. So uh, average cost of a CISO, like a legitimate CISO is uh, easily, uh, when you look total compensation, uh, uh, sign-on bonuses, retention bonuses, uh, equity, benefits, everything else, you're looking at easily half a million uh, to a million dollars plus, uh, depending on the size of the organization that they're, uh, they're gonna be running. Uh, so the virtual CISO gives you an equally capable and, and calibered uh, consultant and a timeshare of it. So it's a fractional share of that CISO uh, uh, personnel. Uh, and we're able to line up the appropriate resource based off of the business type that you're in, uh, the outcomes that you're looking for, 
but really it's more there for strategy development and uh, can be used for execution, but we can typically layer on other services like uh, security architects uh, to uh, fulfill some of the tactical execution that the CISO uh, defines. Uh, but really strategy, risk, um, how you should be communicating to customers or your, the, your, your uh, peer businesses, um, what are the policies that should be in place for business of your type, um, are we uh, managing the appropriate level of risk, um, how, are we fulfilling cyber insurance requirements appropriately, um, those are all kind of the, the strategy and direction and starting to look at not just where we are right now, but also where's this business going in the next uh, three to five years and how do we plan for that and make sure that the not just IT, but security uh, is empowering the business to get to those outcomes. And I mean, this isn't something that exclusively requires you to not have a CISO in place, but you could use and leverage at ts VCSO if you already have a security team in place, right? You can. Uh, it gets delicate, like if there's a CISO already in place, because in the CISO hiring a VCSO, it starts to look, <laughs> the optics of that just don't look very good. You can sometimes also have a, like a really good security person that's just overworked and doesn't have the, the bandwidth to, to scale out, but has the aspirations of becoming the CISO someday. So we're sometimes flexible uh, based off the customer needs and the, the perception that they're trying to build of calling it a virtual CISO versus maybe a strategy trusted advisor. That way we're giving the, the, the outcome that the customer's looking for while not stepping on any toes. One of my favorite like VCSO stories is a customer that was going through, um, they were going through a SOC process. They were doing SOC 2 compliance. And part of it, they had to document all their controls and uh, procedures and policies for the business. And their team, of course, was running around uh, with their hair on fire trying to get everything else done for their SOC compliance. And they used um, VCSO service to author and create all this. I mean, just basically just pure documentation play. We need to produce, you know, a couple hundred pages of policy, documentation, best practices, adherence, you know, what we're currently doing, you know. And that's, and that's how they use the VCSO. Was, uh, the conversation was literally, I don't have the time or energy or want to have anything to do with this. And so for, you know, a nominal amount of money will just not deal with it like it's and it was they were very happy i mean this is another one of those things like the business needed an outcome they needed SOC 2 compliance they didn't need somebody working for them slaving over producing this material they just needed the material done and it was a very it was a very easy trade for them to make of just saying hey let's just you know let's just pay for somebody to do it and and get it very quickly and and they had the result they wanted in a very very short amount of time and were very happy with the outcome um, uh, last thing let's, I want to, I want to touch on, cause we talked about it at the beginning was incident response. And, and this of course turns into incident response plans and retainers or retainers and then plans. So seeing this from supply chain where, where people are now being asked, you know, what is your IR plan? Do you have one documented? Or maybe it's a cyber insurance. Do you have a, an IR plan in place? Do you have a retainer in place? These sorts of things. What does, what does incident response entail? If somebody's being pushed into it or thinking about it, what would you, you know, how do you, how do you explain it and talk through it? What are the options available? Why do you need one? Yeah. I mean, uh, so what is it and why do you need it? Uh, again, back to that fire analogy, it's the firefighters. Um, do you need firefighters? Well, probably most people will never ever need them, <laughs> but the ones that do are really appreciative that they're there. Uh, because it will, it, it really uh, provided some immediate and immense value. Uh, and uh, so from a cybersecurity perspective, it's kind of the same thing that if you 
don't have an incident response team or a retainer or a defined response plan, uh, until you have an incident, you won't really know the impact of that. And unless if there's some other driving requirements that are forcing you to have it, you may just overlook that and uh, not have it, which will then uh, be catastrophic at the moment that you need it the most. Uh, so what is it? It's a, uh, so a retainer is a, uh, it is a uh, statement of work or contract that's in place with a appropriate firm like AT&T Cybersecurity that gives you access to those incident responders um, on a moment's notice when you actually need the help. Difference between your IT team, your even your SOC services, your MDR services, and all that is skill sets. Um, MDR and, and skill sets and uh, access to the environment. Like MDR services will typically uh, provide uh, managed detect and response services, utilizing the tools that they're furnishing to you as a part of the service. It could be a SIM, it could be a EDR tool. They're not going to actually VPN into your environment and log into your Windows workstation that's compromised and then do uh, do forensics and response and manually go through and dissect whatever needs to take place to go eradicate the threat. So that's what the incident response uh, retainer uh, provides you. It gives you resources that can then go off and do that. And as a part of our retainers, we're going to have an onboarding phase, just like any of our services, where we're going to go through and uh, document access, doc uh, get a provision credentials specifically for us so that they can be audited, uh, and then uh, understand the rotation policies for uh, the, the access control uh uh, methods that were being furnished. We're going to get an understanding of the environment. Personnel uh, establish the communication protocol for the customer to the incident response team for their MDR service to us. All that gets flushed out. It's not really a plan because that's specifically for utilizing our service. Your incident response plan is uh, the customer's incident response plan of what they actually do if an incident takes place, who gets notified, uh, who's going to be involved from legal, what C-levels, VPs, boards have to be notified of what's taking place, who makes the final decision on pay or not pay that ransom. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be kind of documented and uh, thought through to be able to then make sure that all these things are working effectively when that time comes. All things that you want to have in place before you have a fire, pretty much, right? You know, we're doing this with our kids right now of like, get out of the house, where do you go, then call 911. You know, like just just what are the steps? Do you practice it? Does everybody know what their role is? You know, like really basic things, like it's your job to get the dog or not. Like who's responsible for getting the dog? You know, uh, you know. Also, interestingly, is now depending on what is your what kind of business you're in, you can have very specific legal requirements. Not not in terms of like your own internal, like get your legal team involved, but you could have legal requirements to you know the state or to the federal governments of what you're required to do and provide and capture and track and, you know, and, and maintain that you probably don't want to find out after the fact that you were supposed to do, you know, it's, it's better to have an awareness of that before you have to maintain whatever it is that you have to maintain. Also, you know, your cyber insurance policy might require you to have certain things in place, right? Or conduct certain actions or discover and figure out certain things in order to get a check from, from your insurance company after the fact. I mean, you don't want to go to ask them for money and then find out and he's like, oh, you, you didn't do step three. And so therefore you're, we're not paying you because you just invalidated your insurance policy. It's so complicated, Elia, you know, why, uh, why is this so complicated? Uh, well, uh, because there's a lot of stake. There's a lot that, that other people would like to have that they don't. 
<laughs> and they can quickly monetize or disrupt or impact just depending on the, the threat actors. Uh, there's a lot of reasons as to why. Since there's uh, a potential, uh, there's a potential of something that they're looking for, uh, you have to be ready to defend what you have. So what I hope came out of this, and just to kind of summarize a lot of this conversation for me when we talk, is AT&T Cybersecurity can provide the tool. You can provide the management and configuration of the tool. You can provide uh, strategy advice guidance of the tool. You can provide um, incident response and remediation services, you know, on top of it. Um, you have a very large logo that's reputable and trusted. So if you're dealing with third parties and externals, and, and one of the things that, that we've seen in practice that's really nice is, hey, my customer or this agency requires us to have these things, and who's doing it? And then when that shows up and it's got AT&T's logo on it, it's like, okay, great, AT&T knows what they're doing. We don't have to dig into this too much. Um, that's that's been a very pleasant experience to see, not have to like, oh, well, we hired our neighbor to do this for us, and what are their credentials? You know, that's not a conversation topic. Um, and we talked about it briefly, but uh, you know, I think we should end on the soundbite. You know, for people that have had experiences or bad experiences with AT and T on the you know mass market telco, you know DSL phone line, whatever side of the business, um, you know, what would you say to them about you know working with AT and T cybersecurity and 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 the differences? I mean, when you're working with such a large organization, there's so many different facets of the organization and so many experiences that every human out there has had with a brand like AT and T. Could be on the, your personal cell phone plan, <laughs> calling in for that, going into store. It could be your business uh, uh, connectivity. Uh, but when you start to look at cybersecurity, although those are all other services that exist within the umbrella, cybersecurity is uh, carved out into its own business unit, specifically with uh, cybersecurity-focused uh, SLAs, cybersecurity-focused uh, resources, our personnel is dedicated to cybersecurity. So one of the questions I get all the time is, will my customer end up calling the same call center for <laughs> connectivity or mobility uh, as they do for cybersecurity? Or is that gonna be different? I'm like, yes, it's different. <laughs> it's, yes. I, the, the tagline to all this is, yes, it's AT&T cybersecurity, but it's completely different. Yes. It's, it's, everything about it's different and separate. It's a completely separate thing. <laughs> we have all the money and resources from AT&T, but we are completely separate. And 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 distinctly different. Elliot, any 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 parting shots or thoughts or things that we did not talk about that we should spend some time talking about, or did we? Uh, do you think that we? I, I mean, I, I'm looking through my notes here. I can't I can't think of anything else I want to talk to you about. Well, actually, I want to talk about everything with you, but um, that makes sense for this <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, I think for for today's topic, I think we did a pretty good job of uh, capturing all the aspects of it. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. The, just the thoughtfulness that you have in uh, in just advising your customers and making sure that the, they're getting and doing the right things and maturing over time uh, as quickly as they can and should. And uh, the guidance that you provide is uh, is I think we we saw a lot of that today on um, the way that you structure this conversation. So really appreciate that. Well, thank you, Elliot, for all, as always. I'm hoping that as time passes, these conversations change a little bit. I mean, I can remember 20 years ago in data centers, you know, you know, DDoS mitigation wasn't a thing, you know, and and if you were, you know, in the early 10s and O's and 10s, you had a DOS attack, you learned very quickly that you just needed to have DOS mitigation as part of your connectivity. And, and nowadays, anybody that went through that experience just, you know, yes, it adds expense to it, but it's just the cost of being on the internet. And, um, 
I'm hoping we're getting closer and closer to that with businesses and cybersecurity. And we're going to stop seeing so many of these horrible stories of, you know, companies having horrible things happening to them and people losing jobs and everything else that comes comes as a byproduct. So, Elia, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Mm-hmm.